0: Welcome back guys to episode 32 of the JPS podcast with Dr. Spencer, now I'm going to say this wrong, Nadolsky?
1: No, that's perfect.
0: I oh, nailed it. I, don't, I usually don't get him in one. And he is known as the Doc Who Lives. So for those of you who aren't sure who Spencer is, he's a uh, board certified physician in both family medicine and obesity medicine um, and quite uniquely Spencer promotes lifestyle change before pharmaceuticals and has fast become one of the fitness industry's uh, leading experts on weight management. He's been featured in countless online publications. He's authored uh, a few books, one of which is The Natural Way to Beat Diabetes. And he was even named Prevention Magazine as America's uh, diabetes-defeating doctor. So he's got quite an impressive... uh, Rap Sheet, and he's also published a few uh, other books online, The Fat Loss Prescription and The 5-Day Fat Flush. So he's uh, helping people all across the world uh, regain their health, uh, lead a healthier lifestyle and achieve their fitness goals. So welcome, Spencer. Thanks for having me, buddy. Not a problem. And uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you went from a physician uh, and I guess stumbled into the fitness industry?
1: Yeah, it's very simple. I grew up in a very athletic-minded family. Brother is a very good wrestler, football player. He went to university, college to, to wrestle, got a scholarship. He's four years ahead of me, so then I came into high school after him, and he was a phenom in high school. My dad was the wrestling coach at the time and also the biology, chemistry teacher, so very scientific-minded along with athletic-minded. So I come into high school after my brother leaves, and I didn't do as well in the beginning. I, we had different body shapes. He was a lot shorter, stockier, very muscular for his size. And I was a little bit lankier, still strong relative, you know, relative to a normal person. But for my size, not nearly as strong as he was. The, the short story is basically that I used science, uh, nutrition science and exercise science and just tried to build my body to the same relative size that he was. And so I ended up going from 145 pounds. By the time I was a senior, I was about 230 pounds. <clears throat> so over four years and a lot of it muscle, very strong. So I ended up becoming a state champion, which is a very big deal uh, and becoming all state football and uh, eventually uh, wrestling in college on a scholarship um, and, and doing really well uh, in, in college. So I. The, the story is basically that I, I use science and X ex, uh, for uh, exercise and nutrition to get good at performance. I, I think it's fun to help people get better performance. But for me, I have just loved being able to change, uh, someone that's just an awful lifestyle to just a pretty good lifestyle and watched huge changes in their health. So, and I went to medical school and, uh, you know, medical school is the same for pretty much everybody. You do this. you learn the same stuff, anatomy, physiology, and pathophysiology, uh, pharmacology, drugs, et cetera. But I wanted to I wanted to take what I learned to get good at sports and basically apply it to the general population all because all I really needed is a fraction of my obsession, right? And anybody else's, that's a fitness fanatic. So then I went into family medicine and then also got a specialty in obesity medicine. And basically, my big thing is talking to the patients, listening to them, understanding what kind of, you know, what stuff they're going through, and help them transition to a, a more fitness, health, lifestyle-minded uh, life, pretty much. And that's kind of my, you know, short story. I could go through lots of little, fun little things, <laughs> but like, that's that's pretty much, that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I wanted to first discuss, you know, the problem with the health care system in westernized countries and why you've uh, set out to break the status quo.
1: Yeah, lots of different problems with the system. So a lot of people give doctors flack. They, They think, oh, they just want to prescribe drugs. Oh, they're just getting money from drug companies and that's why they're giving prescriptions. I mean, really, it's actually not true. In medical school, we learn first line treatment for most chronic disease is lifestyle. In fact, I've written a few articles with it, with my brother, <clears throat> and if you look at the major guidelines for all chronic diseases, whether it's diabetes, whether it's hyperlipidemia or hypertension, high blood pressure, osteoarthritis, and all sorts of other things that you wouldn't even think of, the number one uh, first-line treatment is lifestyle changes, uh, nutrition, exercise, et cetera, weight loss. But in medical school, people go to medical school, and they almost brush it off because it's not as sexy. Lifestyle is not as sexy. I try to make it sexy, but it's, it's just not. It's 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 the it's infographics so, help. Yeah, it's so <laughs> cool to learn about the new pills and everything like that. So you you start combining that where we don't we learn that it's number one treatment, but we actually don't learn the actual. Lifestyle treatment how to Mm -hmm. do it number one we get a little bit of nutrition maybe a little bit of exercise not much But most medical students are very passionate and what's on the boards board examinations of what we have to pass in order to get board certified Etc Most of it is pathophysiology and and pharmacology not the uh, Intricacies of lifestyle medicine, so you combine that and then you put people into a system where even if they knew the best lifestyle management for somebody. They wouldn't even have enough time to give it to somebody. Yeah. So I wasn't, I'm out of the clinic now. I'm doing a very out of the box type of, of practice of medicine right now. But in the clinic, I mean, I, I was a, a champion for lifestyle medicine. Everybody knew me as that, but even still, I only had, you know, 10, 10 minutes with a patient at a time. Yeah. So I'd have to have them back more frequently just to give them the, the, what I thought they needed. And that's why I also ultimately wrote my books so I can just simply give them the book and have them read it in between visits. But like, think about how much you need to know about a person in order to prescribe a very good, tailored, personalized lifestyle plan for them. I mean, not only that, you got to know their, you know, in a regular office visit, you need to know their medicines, you need to know their past medical history. So then, knowing all that, how are you supposed to then give a very good lifestyle plan i mean so what most doctors say is hey you should probably lose some weight you should probably you know diet and exercise you need to like eat a little bit less move a little bit more it's very simple not incorrect but it's just maybe not in depth and and even if you knew the good information it's just not enough time so there's multiple issues with the system all the way starting from medical school all the way to when you're practicing medicine and it's 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 quite. It's an interesting thing. I I mean, I literally talk about it every single day because it's uh, it's frustrating. Because you know, as a lot of people say too, is that most people think, oh, healthcare comes from the doctor, and no, most most of health is not from a doctor anyway. It's the stuff you do outside the doctor's office, and maybe you have some uh, medical issues that do need to be helped from a doctor, but like most of what you do for your health is not going to be from the doctor's office it's, and so there's lots of you know lots of issues there f- from a patient standpoint too.
0: Yeah for sure you raise a lot of really really good points there man Like, I uh, completely agree that health is a function of what you do every day not just what you do for you know a couple of minutes or a visit to a personal trainer or a doctor and so forth and when you're visiting uh, sorry when you have your patients visit you Obviously, there are a lot of reasons uh, that people struggle to manage their weight. It's very multifaceted. But what are the most common uh, problems that people are facing uh, in understanding how to lead a healthier lifestyle and get control of their weight and health?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I actually sent out a. I have like ten thousand people on my email list, and I just kind of wanted to see from my social media and from my email list what what do you find most this hard, like the hardest thing about losing weight and keeping it up I want to get into the minds of people uh, so I can help them better and help you know marketing is another thing trying to figure out what to say because we're losing right now you know people that are science-based are losing to these super marketers they know how to how to how to baffle with BS you know what I mean so I, I'm trying to learn this stuff in order to use science-based information to and, and you and be a little bit sexier with it but in the clinic, there are certain patterns, and then I you know, me reaching out with these um, questionnaires trying to figure it out. It, there's not one major thing, but what I see is a lot of people think it needs to be complicated. A lot of people f- follow very restrictive, restrictive, non-science-based diets. Like they if you're able to explain and, and simplify something, Take all the st- unnecessary steps out of a lifestyle plan to make it, to, to break down the barriers for somebody to follow it. Find, finding something that's sustainable is also means making it simpler. So I always say you got to make it as simple as possible. It has to be tailored towards the person. You can say patient, uh, patient-centered or client-centered, client-based, whatever you want to say. It has to be. It can't just be based on some imaginary person. It has to be flexible in nature, not too rigid or restrictive. Uh, but it also has to be science-based and, and work. So it, it it does, you still have to get down to energy balance. Um, and so finding finding the reasons why people can't stick to that, maybe they've given bad information in the past. Physiologically and and environmentally, we are driven to to gain a lot of weight or to not lose weight because of the way our genetics are, the way our physiology is, the way our environment pushes us in the wrong direction. So maybe people can't necessarily articulate why they can't but it seems to be that they when they try to lose weight they follow some restrictive ridiculous non-science based diet and exercise plan and then they simply cannot sustain doing it and 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 then they give up and then it's just too easy to go back onto a, a onto the standard way of living life which is eating a bunch of <laughs> high calorie foods and not moving much So I make fun of people that say, you know, just eat less and move more. But essentially we have to find ways to actually, we do have to do that from a science based way of thinking, but making it as simple as possible, making it so a patient can sustainably do it and making sure they don't hate their life. And that's really it. But patients don't necessarily know how to articulate that, but um, that's essentially what they're saying when I get these responses.
0: Yeah, awesome. I've definitely seen a lot of similar things uh, in my practice. Obviously, I've been coaching and I've worked with quite a few people now. So there's a lot of uh, commonalities uh, that we're experiencing with people who are trying to yeah, lose weight and it's all the more difficult when you're thrown in an environment uh, that we have today. And you mentioned that the advice of eating less and moving more is fundamentally true. But possibly not the best advice. So, what do you see to be wrong with um, you know dietitians, coaches, doctors who just say to their patients, clients, "Just eat less, move more." What's wrong with that?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, I've written a few articles on this. Other people have said that, and, and what people will ultimately try to say is that you're you're saying that calories in, calories out isn't true, and it's like, no, not at all. I'm just saying. We got to figure out just making a soundbite of "eat less, move more." It, it, it's it's meaningless. We got to figure out how to actually make somebody help somebody do that in a sustainable manner. So like, nobody knows. At least my patients they they don't have the the faintest clue of how to actually do that in a sustainable manner. So like, some people think, well, I guess I just got to do a paleo diet or I got to do a ketogenic type of diet. I guess that's the only way. Uh, and, and they don't even necessarily understand that's what's actually making them eat less. They just eat less, move more. Is not sexy sounding. It doesn't give you a direction or strategy of how to actually do that uh, and making you, your life not miserable. It's and it's it's almost like the same thing as a cliche now. But you know what? The question is what diet works the best. And I've said this many times, but now it's kind of become a another sound bite that's similar to eat less, move more is whatever diet you can, you can sustainably adhere to. It sounds great and it's true, but actually making it happen is an, is another question. So like, um, yeah, telling, telling patients to eat less, move more. It's, it's like, okay, now what? Mm. So what do I, how do I actually do that? And so, yeah, it's fundamentally true. It's just, it's not really helpful. That's all.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's interesting that you mentioned how your patients are often trying to make things too complex, but yeah. then here on the other end of the spectrum, we have this you know, really, really simple advice which you know, you cannot be misinterpreted in any way, shape or form. You simply just yeah. eat less food and move more. So how do we find that balance? What is you know, the best way to, you know, I guess, bridge the gap between having a science-based approach and, you know, doing what is simple, you know, because we know that's often the best solution uh, at first yeah. anyway.
1: Yeah, so ultimately we do have to find uh, – <clears throat> for each individual, I do have to help them. I don't tell them what to do. I, we kind of tango. We, we, we find what's going to work best for them. Not too, It's not too patient-based uh, or centered because if you do too much of what they want to do, it, uh, it won't work as well. And if you do too much of what I want to do, they won't be able to follow it. So – Ultimately, we kind of find the best path for them, finding ways to reduce the amount of calories they're bringing in. And, you know, the whole burning calories is a little bit more complex because complex, exercise will only do so much. I'm sure you've seen the constrained energy systems and all that stuff uh, research kind of uh, talking about. But yeah, if they're very sedentary, doing some sort of going from... Nothing to something will be helpful, but then ultimately finding ways to reduce their calories. So mm-hmm. for instance, and I have buckets for each patient, like a patterns for each type of patient that I, that I put them in. So like one patient, maybe they just have a completely atrocious fast food diet, right? You don't need to do a, a super overhaul and make their diet a perfect, perfectly like uh uh Super well balanced macronutrient calorie based diet. You, you basically pick probably their lowest hanging fruit. So if they're going to McDonald's every single day for lunch, that one that person. All you really have to do is find a substitute for that. Hey, could you just make? And it doesn't have to be grilled wild salmon and some and some uh, broiled <laughs> braised um, uh, steamed broccoli and 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 asparagus. And, you know, something like that and a little bit of brown rice. No, it does It Can you just bring a ham and cheese sandwich and a piece and an apple? Like that's what that's what guys used to do. And and I don't want to say just guys, guys and gals. You know, you bring a sack lunch and it's just a ham sandwich. And, and somewhere along the lines, you know, people would be like, oh, that ham's processed, et cetera, whatever. But it's like, no, no. That's much better than the, uh, than the McDonald's that they're eating for lunch that's giving them 1,000 calories. Give them something that's more like 400 calories mm-hmm. that's, that they're also not going to be super hungry with afterwards. And if you do that one thing, it has to be a – you, you can't just do small little steps because if it's too small, they won't see much progress and then they'll say, forget this guy. Mm-hmm. So you do have to give them results. But for this one person with that, with that pattern thing, you find one big thing that can change. And and you and you have them modify that one thing and then you just keep going like that and eventually teaching them, you know, maybe they will get more into it to where it's like, oh, now they understand the calories and macronutrients. And now you can start making meal templates or have them uh, track their track their calories and, and stuff like that. So that's like that's patient one. Another person maybe they're just, they, they, they always say this, I'm, I'm eating healthy. I'm not eating red meat. I don't even know why they say that. Cause that doesn't even mean anything. Cause if they're eating sirloin, it's the same as eating fricking turkey or fish or chicken. It's just, yeah, you could get into heme iron and some of these other little small nuanced things, but in a terms of a macronutrient calorie, um, I don't like eat, not eating red meat doesn't mean anything for me for, for losing, and, you know, anybody listening, anybody listening to you probably understands the same thing, but it doesn't mean anything, but that's what they think. I'm eating all organic. I'm eating pretty healthy. I don't eat red meat, and it's like, clearly, this person has no idea about energy balance and their yeah. caloric intake. So for that person, you know, instead of just going here, change this one thing. Is this doable? Yeah. You you probably go all right. Let's get a let's get a diet record of what you're doing. That other person, they give a 24-hour, you know, recall. And you know that all they have to do is bring instead of McDonald's eat a ham sandwich and an apple or something like that something that they'd enjoy. For this other person they're going to they're going to come up with oh for breakfast I have a yogurt and a you know and, and it what it's going to sound like is this 1000 calorie diet. Basically what they're going to describe is like a 1000 calorie diet and they think that they're eating quite well but you have to and this is where it's very important to get a very detailed diet log and you, you have to teach them about calories uh, and, and macronutrients and and portion sizes because they just they, they think they're eating healthy and it may be from a quality standpoint it may seem like that they're eating clean bro you know um, but unfortunately these people they they just they don't understand how much they're ingesting I mean none of them understand how much they're ingesting but at least this person they, they, they get an idea of what's good quality even though they don't eat red meat and they think that's a quality thing. So you can teach them a little bit about quality, but it's really going to come down to portions. Uh, And and then beyond that, and then there are other people with just slightly off diets. Maybe they kind of have an idea of, of good quality too. But these other people, I actually do what's called meal templates. And so when people think of like meal plans, meal plans are rigid because it's like you have to eat this type of food and this amount of food. So you give a meal plan, it's like you have to eat six ounces of tilapia, which is the worst tasting fish in the world, but that's it's always tilapia because it's super lean. You have to eat, you know, one cup of of you know cauliflower and one cup of brown rice. Well, instead of that, <clears throat> which is too restri- which is too rigid and and slightly restrictive, why don't you give them more flexibility? Yeah, maybe you teach them about the portions with like. Okay, six ounces of, of a lean protein, and you can swap that out for other types of lean protein. It doesn't have to be even meat. It can be yogurt. It can be, it can even be tofu if you want to do, mm-hmm. you want to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and then and and then teaching them, okay, that one cup of starch. It doesn't have to be brown rice. It could be something else. You could even swap it for fruit. So you start you start getting this idea of, all right, this is your meal template. It's it's going to teach portions. It's going to teach food quality, uh, and if you follow this, you can you can still eat some of the foods you enjoy, and you can even have room for packaged snacks that you understand the, the caloric amount with. That's kind of my approach for most people because I find that it's able to teach the good habits of healthy eating and caloric balance and, and portion control. But you start seeing these different patterns uh, in right. different people, people that don't cook, people that need – maybe maybe they need meal replacements, so – The other thing as you see is sometimes like everybody's like, no, you shouldn't drink your calories. Well, you know, actually the data shows that meal replacement protein shakes are some, this is like the most, the non-pharmaceutical, most powerful thing you can do to help somebody lose weight and keep it off. The only problem is, is that, yeah, I don't know what the percentage is. I'm going to say it's at least half are going to get really sick of drinking protein shakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there are some people that it's like, I don't know. For lunch, for the rest of my life, I could, or for breakfast, most days I could drink a protein shake and maybe have a, an apple. So, finding ways to just completely lower the the caloric intake, help their macronutrient balance. If you need to, you know, bump up their protein and lower fat or lower carbohydrates, depending on what you want to do. Finding ways to do it in the simple, simplest way possible, without having them to think or do tedious things. Because even tracking calories and macronutrients it is super good. I mean, I, I know people that are just so successful, but I found that most people they, it becomes despite it being one of the, like it takes five to 10 minutes maybe of, of your whole day. It, it's so annoying to some people that they just won't do it. And and like, I know cause I'm kind of like a well-oiled machine when it comes to certain lifestyle, but it annoys the hell out of me. And so I know if it annoys me and my patients keep saying it, I, I understand. So if people do it for the rest of their lives, Oh man, they were going to be super successful, and it's like the you know it is super easy, I think, but it's so annoying and tedious that most people won't do it for for good. So anyway, that's a I just went on for for a long time, but this is kind of how I put different patients in different buckets, and you know ultimately you want to personalize and and individualize for each person and make it something that they can do, and and not and not you don't want to be a hammer and see everything as a nail because you know if you think nope you got to track your calories you got to track your macronutrients and it'll work for a lot of people but there're going to be enough other people that it, it won't necessarily work for and they just don't want to do it or they just don't get it or something like that anyway long rant
0: <laughs> no yeah i think you you raised many very valid points and one of which really resonates with me is that you know calorie tracking isn't for everyone Um, And there needs to be a large learning curve before people can actually do that properly. So I definitely think that keeping things simple um, and teaching people the basics of energy balance and macronutrient profiles and just being able to understand what different foods contain energy-wise, macronutrient-wise, is the first step uh, in teaching nutrition. And what I wanted to ask you about, Spencer, was, you know, the obesity epidemic—we always, you know, look to a scapegoat. Well, at least the uh, the general population do, anyway. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Those of us who are a little bit more uh, in tune with the research tend not to sway too far on either side of the pendulum and see that this whole, you know, weight gain thing uh, is very much uh, multifaceted, like I mentioned. Um, but what is your take on the addictiveness of foods? Because now this has become a really hot topic. People are blaming sugar and, you know, do you think this is a misnomer and can you explain what your stance is on that?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's actually a great question. I've written a few little blurbs and blogs and all sorts of things on this because, so you have one camp that's like very sensational. They'll say Oreos and foods are as addictive or more addictive than cocaine and they're basing this off of, I believe, functional MRI uh, studies where they show parts of the brain lighting up like it like it did with with cocaine or amphetamines or even more so so it's like you got sensational people like that saying sugar and these foods are more addictive than highly controlled very addictive drugs and if anybody's ever treated somebody with with a substance abuse issue oh man um that's that's a that's something that's a big statement that's tough to swallow but okay let's let's just let's just take it for what they say and then you have on the other camp nope foods cannot be addictive you cannot you know you can't compare foods to drugs that's ridiculous no foods are addictive type of thing it's like okay well why don't we well, let's just look at the science here so these people on one side are saying absolutely opposite and of course the the answer is probably somewhere in the middle so we look at neurobiologists so uh a doctor you know i'm sure you know of Dr. S- uh, Dr. Guillenet, um, uh, I don't know if you've had him on the podcast, so he's a neurobiologist. I've gone to multiple, since medical school, I've gone to one or two large obesity conferences per year where a few neurobiologists do some sort of speaking about uh, the brain and how parts of the brain are related to addiction, uh, wanting, liking, dopamine, opioids, this mesolimbic center, the reward center in the brain. And how certain foods may light up that uh, area, and how certain people with obesity can have dysfunctions in that area. So you start learning the kind of the nuances right. of just whether food's addictive versus not, and you start going, okay, there is some overlap maybe of of how drugs work and how some of these foods may have similar properties. So you just keep going and working with patients. They keep saying, it's so hard for me to stay away from fill in the blank food. Chocolate. Sugar. And when they say sugar, it's never table sugar. It's <laughs> it's 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 like donuts, it's cookies, it's high carb I mean, you know, the term hyper palatable, but like just extremely tasty uh, uh, foods that are likely high in starch, sugar, fat, salt, and have good mouthfeel and everything like that. Patients, I mean they swear up and down, I cannot I just I, I can't. And so Am I going to tell them, well, you do know that foods are not addictive, so you're an idiot, you're a liar, or do I say, yep, you're addicted to this food, and we have to treat you like that, or do we go, okay, so this is this is actually what I do. I go, well, okay, so here's the thing, when we start looking at the science, there there are some overlaps in the brain. Now, it's probably not the same thing as a drug addiction. There are some physiological, chemical things happening with you know, and I may even talk about if depending on how much they know, maybe talk about dopamine and, and, and opioids and everything like that in the brain. But I say, you know, there is some overlap. There are ways to overcome that with behavioral therapies, just like with, with drug, uh, with drug, uh, addiction. You know, there are support classes, there's behavioral, uh, therapies, cognitive behavioral therapies, acceptance-based therapy is something I, I work on a lot, which we can talk about. But, but then there are also actually medicines that work in the same parts of the brain that you use for drug addiction for for instance alcohol abuse there's a, a, a drug called naltrexone that you can use to help people stop their cravings and wanting of alcohol it blocks uh, the opioid uh, receptors in the brain so that medicine and then there's another medicine called bupropion which is commonly used for depression but they also found it also works for smoking cessation it helps people stop their craving for for smoking and nicotine, that works up in the brain <clears throat> with norepinephrine and dopamine. So what they found is that, so yeah, we got a drug that works for, for smoking cessation, we got a drug that works for, for drinking cessation or alcoholism. They've actually combined those two drugs and that helps with, not everybody, but some people with a lot of weight loss and it helps with cravings with foods and it works in the same centers of the brain that that are with these drugs. So. Just to say there's no addiction and then it's as addictive as cocaine is probably not right. What I like to say is these foods may have addictive-like properties, and there's a, a recent review that, that kind of says that, but basically these more hyperpalatable, it's not just strictly sugar and it's not just strictly one type of food. It's it's these food with a combination of properties. Make them addictive-like. I wouldn't call them addictive, and I don't want to give power to the food. Patients in the moment... they still have power and it's not going to be as, 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 uh, as this powerful craving as it is to have a drink or maybe, uh, amphetamines, you know, meth or something like that. But there, there's clearly a draw. I mean, you talk to these patients, they have a draw and it's like, you still have the power. So you try to empower the patient, take away this idea that, that they're completely addictive, but, but, um, normalize what they're thinking. Don't, don't just tell them they're idiots, but tell them, no, you, what you're feeling is probably real, but you, we're, we're going to help you, empower you to make sure you understand you do have a choice. And if worse comes to worse, we may be able to use medicines that work up in your brain that's going to block that stuff. And that's simply that's you know again I hate the the very polarizing. Let's let's be science based about this, mm. and 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 kind of look at all the data and not just take a, a very polarized stance. Although that works with marketing and stuff like that but it's just not very science-like. So that's another long-winded answer for a short question, but uh, I think it deserves some nuanced uh, talk.
0: Yeah, no, that was uh, very informative, and I think the listeners will really enjoy uh, your take on that, as did I. And another very similar topic, uh, which I wanted to get your opinion on and share with the listeners, uh, was how you uh perceive artificially sweetened beverages um uh, in health and weight loss, um whether or not they're safe and beneficial to dieters. You know, what's your take on that, Spencer?
1: Yeah, so you talk about this on the internet and this is it, I, I I I can't explain it, but this is similar to talking about vaccines. It's talking it's similar to talking about politics. Um I, I've never seen such a polarizing topic that's beyond like politics and vaccines. I mean, artificial sweeteners. I mean, I post about it and I know my crowd pretty well. Uh, I, I was always big on Facebook. And so people that follow me are pretty clear that it's like, I'm, I'm not pro artificial sweeteners or what we call non-nutritive sweeteners because, you know, stevia is, is uh, natural, but um, I, I'm, I'm not pro, but I'm not anti at all. Uh, and so my Facebook is usually like, yep, yep. And there's some people in there that get mad. But I recently grew my Instagram and they don't know me as well on there. And just, I mean, people just fling mud. They, Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Of they you Someone called me a Dr. Fuckwad on there. And I just like, <laughs> I mean, it was hilarious. It was actually pretty funny. Um, <clears throat> so my stance is this. And I've done a few reviews on, on some of the medical uh, news syndicate uh, websites with my brother kind of looking at some of these meta-analysis and 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 trials that have been done the deal is this there's actually been studies showing that artificial sweeteners compared to water you actually do better when dieting which is seems so counterintuitive because there's so much epidemiological evidence meaning correlated correlation evidence for those who drink a lot of uh, diet sodas and weight gain prospectively um, However, when you look at experimental data, meaning they give – they tell one person to do one thing and one person to do the other thing, um, it, it doesn't pan out, at least over a year.
0: Mm.
1: So – and they're mixed too. There was one study recently, I think it was with type 2 diabetics, the people with, that drank water as opposed to artificial sweeteners did better. But then there was another study showing people that actually did artificial sweetened beverages did better than those who were told to drink water. I think this is interesting stuff. I do it more on a I, – I, I, I tell people, look, worst comes to worse, water's probably the best to drink. You know, if, if if you're really worried about it, just who cares? Don't drink it. But at the data we have right now seems to show they're generally safe, especially if you're not drinking a two liter of it or more a day, which I think would be ridiculous, although I've met some patients that do that. And what what some of these people on the internet say is like, are you kidding me? Regular soda is way better for you than, than diet soda. And it's like um, I don't know if you've seen uh, how how diabetes works but like you're already – you're already eating a really crappy high caloric diet and you guys are drinking a, like a, a liter or two liters of regular soda. If you simply switch that for diet – and I've had many patients do it. I don't know. and not, Maybe not – maybe 100 – maybe 100 – I don't know. Maybe not 100 patients but definitely – Combined patients and online followers who sent me stories who switched out that liter or two liters of regular soda for diet soda, their their triglycerides go down, their sugar blood sugars and, and everything improves, and they lose, you know, 20, 30 pounds maybe, uh, over the course of a uh, six months or, or or so. And it's like Oh, so this other person saying, no, you, if you drink soda, you better drink the regular stuff because those artificial sweeteners are just poison. They're toxic. Well, what, what, is, what exactly is it toxic? I mean, you start talking about different, uh, and there's multiple different artificial sweeteners. So a lot of it, you know, it's, it's always aspartame it's, or sucralose. And, and, you know, they come up with all these cockamamie, uh, you know, theoretical biochem uh, reasoning. But like when you start looking at the science and what actually has been experimented with, It doesn't really pan out, so I I tell I tell people, look, if you want to look at it like a nicotine patch, you know, when you're smoking and you want to stop smoking, and you don't want to use those drugs that you know, one of them I mentioned and another one called Chantix, um, uh, you want to use a nicotine patch. You basically you're still in the nicotine and you're just lowering the dose. So I, I tell people, go to go from regular to diet soda, and then ideally, yeah, you'd probably wean off of that, but. Honestly, I can't. I can't see. I don't see anything out there in the literature that says you, you should probably have the regular over diet soda. I always say, if you're going to drink soda, make it make it diet. Don't make it regular. Um, again, if you're within your caloric balance or whatever, yeah, you want to. Your one, uh, your one, uh, one vice a day is a regular soda. Probably, it's, it's probably fine. It doesn't matter. But um, most people, you know, they're not they're so hypercaloric and they're overweight that it's not, that wouldn't be uh, something I would um, uh, propose. So I think they're fine. You know, I, I, I think, I think these zealots, they just, they like using scare tactics and sensational uh, information guys like Dr. Mercola and they just, they find these obscure cherry pick studies. And it's like, no, we got to look at the totality of studies and look you know, a lot of us are biased. We drink diet sodas all the time. And so we want it to be safe, but like, uh, you know, we got to look at the data and and the data shows probably safe. You know, that's my stance.
0: Awesome. I'm uh, sure that's good news for many people out there who are chugging away plenty of uh, diet Coke, uh, as they, as they watch this uh, episode and on a related note, and I'm sure you're probably uh, hearing this one a lot from your patients, as I know I do with my clients, is the you know the health halo, and that people uh, perceive certain foods as you know healthy, um, such as organic um, yeah. and you know clean and all of these kind of things. So why is the labelling of foods um, you know detrimental to dieters? You know, we touched on. Uh, it ignores energy balance and whatnot, but how else can, you know, this be potentially harmful uh, to somebody's, you know, fat loss uh, efforts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you said, it, if, if you don't understand the number one concept of, of fat loss, weight loss, and, and energy balance, you're going to have troubles. Because, like, so, for instance, I've had many patients who are, like I said before, I'm eating healthy. I eat everything organic. Well, that was the one thing that gave me the idea of and I don't know if you saw this a couple of years ago. I posted regular Reese's peanut butter cups versus organic Justin's peanut butter cups, and I was like, "Look, they have the same caloric value, same macronutrient value, but one's organic and one's not. One's it doesn't expensive. matter which one you eat." And so and, and so these and and so that 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 little infographic went viral, and that was like one of the first in the fitness industry. Uh, that did all these infographics and that thing thousands of shares just thousands all over the internet and you know people are like yeah but those ingredients in the Reese's peanut butter cups are are bad for you I'm like the negligible amount of soy lecithin or lecithin in there uh, and some of these other things it's just it's so minuscule it doesn't it's not going to matter for fat loss I personally actually like the taste of the Justins I'm not even I'm not, I'm not mad. It's just the point that these patients really think that because something's organic, they think you can just eat, it doesn't matter how much of it you eat, it's, it's going to somehow help you lose weight, gluten free, fat free, even that's kind of one of the things that got us in trouble, you know, 20 years ago, everything went, look, this doesn't have any fat, so it's good for you. Yeah. Just eat a bunch of Twizzlers. I remember I used to eat Twizzlers, these special it said fat free. And I was like, oh yeah, sweet. This is ridiculous. I could eat a ton of those things, um, but if if you don't understand the 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 common or the the normal principles, the scientific principles, it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be complex. You just need to know the simple little bits of it. These health halos can be dangerous. Um, I'm trying to think of a few other things, it, you know, cholesterol free, anything free, any any you know anything like that that's just trying to make you think that it's it 's necessarily good for you and it, it may be fine for you, but uh these health halos just they don 't they don 't help I think understanding the the principles would help a lot more
0: yeah, for sure, I definitely agree with uh everything that you said there, and labeling food uh, can be the start of you know a really unhealthy relationship with food as well, which we know uh is very much uh, a big player in our ability to manage weight long term, and for many who are wanting to start, you know, a weight loss journey, it can be overwhelming. You know, um, and they fear that you know they're not going to succeed. That you know there's going to be so many obstacles and barriers in their way, um, and that they can't consistently change their behaviours or adhere to their plan. They they fear that they're going to fail. So for listeners who may have some doubt or be working with clients and patients um, you know who are experiencing these types of things what is your advice
1: yeah so you know the one the one big thing is like look yes it's hard to lose weight and keep it off yes you know a lot of things are fighting against you and that's where i talk about the acceptance based therapy accept that these things are going to happen uh, control what you can accept what you cannot we can ex- we, we cannot accept our environment we, we, we have to accept that our environment is going to be working against us we have to accept that our body is going to be working against us but to make it easier learn the principles of 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 scientific weight loss and make it as simple as possible on you and then remember the the whole all or nothing mindset some people think i'm either on a diet or i'm off it's like No, you know, this whole idea is you're either you're either first or you're last. That doesn't make sense. Like so a lot of patients think I need to be 100 percent on a diet or I just can't do it at all. And that doesn't make any sense in grade school in high school, college, university, whatever you want to say on a test. I don't remember having maybe there's one quiz in there, but I don't remember having a quiz where you either got 100 percent or a zero percent. You can get an A, B, B, you know, a ninety, ninety percent, eighty percent B. You can even get a seventy percent, which is a C. I wouldn't go sixty percent but <laughs> uh, and get a D. But like, but <laughs> so you start like I always try to say, think, think consistent. Don't think perfection. Perf- you know, if you can do something perfectly without, you know, and, and there is no perfect because you would have to have some sort of blood. Fingerprint analyzer and we don't have that the DNA tests out there for fitness and diets are just absolute bogus Um, So we don't have it yet. So we don't even there's no such thing as perfect but Think you know if if you if you have what you think is the perfect diet that's set for you You don't have to be 100% on that diet or 0% you can be you know, just somewhat close to it whether it's 60 70 80 percent 90 percent uh, just think close, not perfect uh, and that's that's these are big things because again these people they get intimidated and they're like, oh my god I just I just had a soda I just had a piece of pizza i I can't follow this it's like, who cares? just go back to what you were doing bef- you know before as best as you can don't think all or nothing again, easier said than done, you know this is something I have to drill into my patients and followers all the time. it's not something that's easily just oh okay, Dr. Spencer, I'll follow what you say it's it's a it's a perfect. It's easier said than done, but it, it's, if we just keep drilling it, you'll hear it from me. You'll hear it from all the science-based guys uh, and, and people who actually care about helping you get to your goals. You, know, you don't have to follow anything perfectly. Just understand. Getting close. Think of it as a marathon, not a sprint, um, and you'll be good.
0: Yeah, awesome advice, Spencer. And for someone who has recognized that you know, they have unhealthy habits – um, whether it's you know snacking too much, you know just making poor uh, nutritional decisions, uh, you know not being motivated to exercise, and obviously each of these will require a completely uh, different approach. But what would be your your number one advice or tip um, for breaking habits? How would somebody go about that?
1: Yeah, so one company this company precision nutrition they're big on this is is kind of one habit at a time i'm kind of i i don't stick to that necessarily i stick to let's find just a few just a few big low-hanging fruit big rocks that some people say and let's just let's just switch those uh, to something that you could you could do and and if we can just pick a few things and that's something that's You'll be able to tolerate. Then let's just do those, and you you can have success if if as long as they are like pretty big you know offenders. You know some people will be like, oh gosh, I I went from eating, you know farm raised salmon to to wild caught salmon. That's another health halo. You know I, why am I not losing weight? Because like, that doesn't matter. I went from regular you know beef to pasture raised grass fed beef. It's like that doesn't that 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 wasn't a big rock, that was nothing. That may be helpful for the environment, maybe, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, trying to find a big energy rock and, and, and something very simple and doable, and just a few of them. It doesn't have to be just one, maybe it is. Maybe it's a few things that are just doable, and uh, it doesn't have to be much, basically.
0: Awesome, yeah, like like uh, tackling the big rocks. That's always uh, a good way to start. And in your experience, what is the one trait that you know your successful patients possess uh, in you know getting on top of all these uh, health-related and fitness you know related goals?
1: Yeah, I, there's a there's a few of them. So I don't want to I don't want to give a negative connotation, but the patients that do the best, they buy in to this to this lifestyle a little bit and. and Almost lo- almost obsessed, but I don't want to say obsessed because that's negative, but it's it's something where they just make it a, a, a good chunk of their lives. Mm. You know you don't have to like be a crazy fitness fanatic like you see and start blogging and doing and changing your whole thing and, and, and become a cult you know cult follower. However, I will say that the patients that do the best they there's something about it that they just buy in and they're just like, yep, this is this is a part of my life now. Maybe there was something, you know, they they just were missing this part of their life. And again, I I don't I I feel like people that become too obsessed. There is a problem there because that can give some mental anguish and and Mm. obviously can put some put some issues, strain on, on family dynamics, social dynamics, friends and whatever. But if they if people make it a decent chunk of their life without going so far as maybe becoming obsessed in the negative way. They're the best, and it's not any one thing. It's sometimes it is maybe counting calories. Sometimes, uh, you know, wh- one of the things is like, oh my God, I love lifting weights now, and I love eating my meal template. This is my template, or yep, got my shake for the day and my fruit. It's it's uh it's like bam, they're so consistent with it, um, uh, and and they just it's like they they love it. It's it's hard to explain. I, I the patients that don't. Uh, they think they need a, a quick fix of some sort, and they just wanted some sort of uh, they they fail. And I have lots. I mean, you know, we're almost out of time, but I have lots of stories how I've tried to manufacture. Um, I've tried to manufacture that. So I want to. I'll just say quickly, a lot of not a lot, but a good number of patients in the clinic that had lost a decent amount of weight and then wanted me to help them further. They were very successful on something like the 21 Day Fix or one of these Beachbody programs like P90X. It gave them it gave them a, the boost to to help them start, and then I helped them kind of finish. A, a, not every patient did that, but an, enough to where I want, I was like, I wonder if I could manufacture this. So I actually created, you know, you mentioned the five day fat flush, and I created something called a twenty seven day fat loss prescription. It was supposed to be kind of based off my book, but a more rapid fat loss mm-hmm. plan. It worked for a lot of people, except that' we're, I got an, I got too many people that were in this quick fix mindset. And so it didn't backfire because I, I got a lot of people doing doing exactly what I wanted. That same rapid fat loss with a big win out the gate, and then realizing, oh yeah, I actually got to make this a part of my lifestyle. I got enough of those to be like, okay, it wasn't such a loss, but I got too many of the it it, it marketed too much to the 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 quick win, uh, quick fix mindsets. To it, it it actually it rubbed me the wrong way to where I'm like I'm completely changing what I'm going to do. Um, so like, so, and I don't, I don't even, I don't even know if it would matter. Cause maybe I would like, maybe if I didn't market it that way, I'd still get the other people that would still trust me and maybe I wouldn't have gotten those quick fix. But if somehow I can convey how to get this quick fix mindset out of, out of the system, you can, you can do rapid fat loss. That's fine. That's a good way to start and then get going and realize it's a lifestyle change and all this stuff. But it, there's too many people that just think I got to do a, a quick fix and that's it for a month. And then what, then what? No, you still got to keep doing something that's at least transitioned from that rapid fat loss. That's what I did. I do rapid fat loss for a lot of people that need a lot to lose. And then we transition to a sustainable program. Uh, but some of these people, they just, I don't know, they, they feel like I got to do this. And then, and then it's like, well, wait, what do I do now? I, can I just go back to before it's like, no, no, and then I get you know I get frustrated. So um, again, so what the, the the failures are the ones that think they just need to do something for a month and that's it.
0: I I really like that. It's a lifestyle. It isn't just something that we can achieve, uh, you know, tomorrow or in a couple of weeks. And I think that you're spot on in approaching things for those who need it in a very uh, rapid manner to get that buy in, and then you know it does give you. Bit more power and control uh in a sense to be able to transition into something that's more flexible sustainable uh, yep. over the long term spencer my final question for you is does the doc who lives drink alcohol what's your favorite drink and what are your recommendations to your patients on alcohol consumption
1: yeah i do i i do drink like i actually seldomly drink i don't know some of the listeners i don't think they if they were at the fitness summit a couple of years ago, I drank a little bit too much tequila and had to, uh, uh, evacuate my, my system. Um, but yeah, I, I the, my favorite drink, I actually like a good bloody Mary. Uh, if, if Alan, uh, Aragon ever listens to this or you can ask him, you can ask him about my strong bloody Marys at the, at the fitness summit. But, uh, I'd like a good, a good bloody Mary. If I'm out for brunch, good, bloody Mary and a mimosa, Sometimes I'll do, uh, um, you know, just a glass of, of, of white wine, a Chardonnay or something. I'm very simple. Uh, I'm not drinking Manhattans or, or something like that. Um, but, but yeah, I, don't, I drink seldomly. And so my, my recommendations, there are actually a lot of patients that go, but what about alcohol? It's like, OK, why don't we be reasonable about this? How much are you drinking? If it's a bottle of wine, that's a problem. So you, know, you can't drink a bottle of wine. No, the, the general recommendations are for women, the equivalent of one drink and for men, the equivalent of one, maybe two drinks. And I stick with that. I, I from a health standpoint, not just from fat loss, from just strictly health, I, I stick with that. If they're not, if they don't like the drink, it doesn't make a difference. But one drink should not break, should not break a weight loss program. It shouldn't. They should be able to still enjoy one drink. We just have to make up for it somewhere else. I know we can get into the substrate usage and and um, and and oxidation. You know, using the, uh, uh, the the alcohol first before other macronutrients and other things like that, and inhibitions or whatever. But one standard drink shouldn't shouldn't break a, a plan. Someone should be able to do that if they want to stop and they don't really care. Then that's one thing. But if it's like, no, I need, I want to have it. I like it. I enjoy it. Then that shouldn't be a big issue.
0: Awesome. Spencer, thank you so much for your time. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky and Spencer, we'll speak to you next time.
1: Yes, thanks for having me, buddy.
0: Not a problem.